Welcome to the Nevermore podcast. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our discussion of fairy tales. We've leapt all the way from Cinderella through to Little Mermaid and now into our free-for-all episode, where we'll be discussing some of our favorites. Today on the program, I'm rejoined by Executive Coordinator, Shiel Mulan Barubi. Welcome back, Shiel. Today, she's going to be sharing her favorite story, and I'm going to let her lead this episode with that, and then we're going to be going to my favorite story, and, and finally discussing a big wrap-up on the overall arching themes of fairy tales. So with all that in mind, welcome back, Shiel, and let's get going. Thank you, Larissa. Um let's go with the wolf and the seven little kids now the title is a little bit um uh it's not quite what people think when they first hear the title it's a little bit um misdirecting a little because we all know what the word kids means to all of us right so here it goes i'm going to actually read the whole thing because it's only about three and a quarter pages through four pages long it's a very short one, and this one's the Brothers Grimm fairy tales uh, version of it. Now, The Wolf and the Seven Little Kids goes a little like this. There was once upon a time an old goat who had seven little kids, and loved them with all the love of a mother for her children. One day she wanted to go into the forest and fetch some food. So she called all seven to her and said, Dear children, I have to go into the forest. Be on your guard against the wolf. If he comes in, he will devour you all, skin, hair, and everything. The wretch often disguises himself, but you will know him at once by his rough voice and his black feet. The kids said, Dear mother, we will take good care of ourselves. You may go away without any anxiety. Then the old one bleated and went on her way with an easy mind. It was not long before someone knocked at the house door and called, Open the door, dear children, your mother is here, and has brought something back with her for each of you. But the little kids knew that it was the wolf by the rough voice. We will not open the door, cried they. You are not our mother. She has a soft, pleasant voice, but your voice is rough. You are the wolf. Then the wolf went away to a shopkeeper and bought himself a great lump of chalk, ate this, and made his voice soft with it. Then he came back, knocked at the door of the house, and called, Open the door, dear children, your mother is here, and has brought something back with her for each of you. But the wolf had laid his black paws against the window, and the children saw them and cried, We will not open the door, our mother has not black feet like you, you are the wolf. Then the wolf ran to a baker and said, I have hurt my feet, rub some dough over them for me. And when the baker had rubbed his feet over, he ran to the miller and said, Strew some white meal over my feet for me. The miller thought to himself, The wolf wants to deceive someone, and refused. But the wolf said, If you will not do, do it, I will devour you. Then the miller was afraid, and made his paws white for him. Truly this is the way of mankind. So now the wretch went for the third time to the house door, knocked at it, and said, Open the door for me, children. Your dear little mother has come home and has brought every one of you something back from the forest with her. The little kids cried, First show us your paws that we may know if you are our dear little mother. Then he put his paws in through the window, and when the kids saw 
that they were white, they believed that all he, has, he said was true, and opened the door. But who should come in but the wolf? They were terrified and wanted to hide themselves. One sprang under the table, the second into the bed, the third into the stove, the fourth into the kitchen, the fifth into the cupboard, the sixth under the washing bowl, and the seventh into the clock case. But the wolf found them all, and used no great ceremony. One after the other, he swallowed them down his throat. The youngest, who was in the clock case, was the only one he did not find. When the wolf had satisfied his appetite, he took himself off, laid himself down under a tree in the green meadow outside, and began to sleep. Soon afterwards, the old goat came home, again from the forest. Ah, oh, what a sight she saw there! The house door stood wide open, the table, chairs, and benches were thrown down, the washing bowl lay broken to pieces, and the quilts and pillows were pu pulled off the bed. She sought her children, but they were nowhere to be found. She called them one after another by name, but no one answered. At last, when she came to the youngest, a soft voice cried, Dear mother, I am in the clock case. She took the kid out, and it took, told her that the wolf had come and had eaten all the others. Then you may imagine how she wept over her poor children. At length in her grief she went out, and the youngest kid ran with her. When they came to the meadow, there lay the wolf by the tree, and snored so loud that the branches shook. She looked at him on every side and saw that something was moving and struggling in his gorged belly. Oh, heavens, she said, it is, is it possible that my poor children, whom he has swallowed down for a supper, can be still alive? Then the kid had turn, turned to run home and fetch scissors and a needle and thread, and the goat cut open the monster's stomach, and hardly had she made one cut that one little kid thrust its head out. And when she had cut far, farther, all six sprang out one after another, and were all still alive, and had suffered no injury whatever. For in his greediness the monster had swallowed them down whole. What rejoicing there was! They embraced their dear mother, and jumped like a tailor at his wedding. The mother, however, said, Now go and look for some big stones, and we will fill the wicked beast's stomach with them while he is still asleep. Then the seven kids dragged the stones tither with all speed and put as many of them into his stomach as they could get in, and the mother sewed him up again in the greatest haste, so that he was not aware of anything and never once stirred. When the wolf at length had had his fill of sleep, he got on his legs, and as the stones in his stomach made him very thirsty, he wanted to go to a well to drink. But when he began to walk and to move about, the stones in his stomach knocked against each other and rattled. Then cried he, What rumbles and tumbles against my poor bones? I thought twas six kids, but it feels like big stones. And when he got to the well and stooped over the water to drink, the heavy stones made him fall in, and he drowned miserably. When the seven kids saw that, they came running to the spot and cried aloud, The wolf is dead, the wolf is dead, and danced for joy round about the well with their mother. And that is the whole fairy tale. For me, that fairy tale is a lot about um, not just greed, but, you know, making mistakes, but being able to correct them at the same time. You know, good does eventually prevail over evil. That's what that fairy tale means to me. It's also about parenting, where, you know, 
sometimes us parents make mistakes and don't teach our kids what we should, but we can correct that mistake by going back and, you know, learning the lesson with our children. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. I don't think I have actually ever heard it, but it's very similar to the way that the grandmother was saved in Red Riding Hood, that the idea that you could be consumed but still living uh, is a kind of interesting um, <clears throat> concept. But it might actually be based on the fact that um, in several instances, we know that certain royal families like to eat food right out of an animal's carcass or an, a living animal's carcass. So the animal would be sort of um, almost, uh, oh, what, what's the word when you stuff animals? Um, Taxidermy. Thank you. The animal would be taxidermy in place and then a pie would be placed inside. We know that uh, King Henry did this eating a goose. He actually had a uh, goose pie or a swan pie and the pie was actually placed inside the body of the swan and the swan was actually frozen in place or taxidermied in place. So perhaps the when if you were you know a serf or or someone who served the royal family if you had seen that it might be perceived that that they were eating from living animals. <laughs> so I, I maybe that fairy tale kind of plays into this idea that you're not really dead yet. No. You know what I mean? It, like It ties in the sleep versus dead interchangeability too. It also ties into the, the times that the Brothers Grimm came from where those things were widely accepted as well. What you're talking about, the eating from the frozen or live animal is more widely accepted then than it is now. Mind you, in Asian cultures, some Asian cultures, live animal eating in or, you know, sushi and sushimi that is still moving because they, they butcher it right in front of the, the customer. Um, is still a thing today too so wriggling moving muscles of a fish that you're eating raw in some asian cultures is widely accepted yeah and i believe that there is a, a documentary on the various eating practices of human beings it was actually even done by the one of the women who used to appear on that cooking show two big fat ladies and she did a documentary on um on the meals so she had one on breakfast lunch and dinner and the one on breakfast, she actually went and spoke to a medieval uh, scholar who talked about how in early uh, Christian periods, the belief that animals or consuming animals meant that you were consuming a living being was so strong that they would actually tell women not to eat certain animals because they believed that the animal or the consumption of that animal would, in, would become alive in the woman's stomach. So that there were certain foods that were absolutely forbidden during pregnancy because it was believed that you would actually have a living cow like rumbling around in your stomach. There's so also, I... <laughs> to, to go on off of that tangent too, I've actually seen old school medical textbook pictures of women giving birth to little bunny rabbits. Right, yeah. a, a phenomenon known back then from either consuming such a food or in this case, in the case of the one that I'm talking about, it was actually found out to be a hoax where the woman was pulling the wool over their eyes by stuffing live baby bunnies into her body cavities. 
so that she could pull the wool over the doctor's eyes and be some sort of miracle. My goodness, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's a little too far for my likes. Um, I will yeah, stick to human it, birthing. <laughs> right? And, I mean, I think um, human beings today are almost walking slightly back to a place where we're understanding where our food comes from and knowing that we are consuming living animals or, well, I mean, an animal that was once alive. But <clears throat> the fact that we have a close association to food is a very human concept. So this story is not that weird, even though it sounds weird. The idea that food or consuming food made sort of an impact, even as far as that you could grow the thing that you ate inside of you is, is not so strange when you think about it. If, if they just didn't understand that there was stomach acid and, and that there's no way that you could survive if someone ate, you know, if a wolf ate a, a goat, the goat is not going to survive, at, just based on science. Yeah. But the science was not really understood. Get that there was acid there that broke down the food. Yeah. yeah. And I like the play on words for this one, too, because a lot of people hear the word kid or kids, and they think children. Children, yeah. And it's yet it's goats. actually goats, <laughs> as in the actual scientific term for a baby goat is kid or kids, a group of kids. Uh, and the fact that mom is referred to both as mother and goat or old as well, you know, like a nanny goat or a billy goat. Nanny goat, yeah. 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 And I wonder, too, if like the three little pigs were kind of based off this original uh, story, because then you have, you know, the, the same type wolf as just trying to deceive the pigs and knocking on the doors and being like, you know. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. And they're like, no, I'm not going to let you in. <laughs> not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Yes, I right. do believe that this is, is one of the earlier versions of Three Little Pigs as well. Again, there's that uh, animal theme too, right? Pigs, yeah. for, for re certain religions, pigs are known as the dirty uh, food that you don't touch, right? Particularly in Islam, where pork product is a big no-no. Uh, look at shellfish for Christianity and Catholics back then again of an early form of propaganda too where they would use the Bible to say okay don't eat this because you can get sick it wasn't right. really that it was you're not allowed for especially for shellfish it's just that it was their way they knew that's the one thing that everybody would read or pass along as word of mouth is is the Bible way back when so every family member would hear it from another family, oh, shellfish is against our religious law, but it was actually higher ups and saying, well, don't eat shellfish because you're going to get sick. It was a way to control illness. It's not just religion. It was also a way of passing information. And fairy tales right. are like that too. Yeah, and also passing class systems. Like, who was eating goats? So the rich and <laughs> probably extremely poor. Yeah, uh, goats didn't have a lot of meat on them, yeah. and so if you were poor and your milking goat had served its purpose, there really is no other way. <laughs> Absolutely, that you're going to deal with that than eating it. Yeah. So it might have been viewed as a class thing that uh, you know the consumption of goats or consumption of certain foods was for the lower classes. 
the um, fact that they mentioned the way of mankind in that particular fairy tale too literally yeah. the wolf says that is the way of mankind the consumption of things the like consumption eating. of things yeah. but also what you're talking about the the class system is the poor would eat the goat because once it was done doing its duty it's exactly or that, that the way of mankind or maybe like more of an overarching statement of like an animal life is only for food yeah and that you know so i think it's a really really cool story and who wrote the wolf and the seven uh, it doesn't indicate who wrote it it's just a, a collection of the brothers grim fairy tales uh, oh, interesting so i'd like to have revisit also the mankind um statement too on the other hand of he was deceiving those goats so he's saying well mankind deceives as well mm. right and what are the classes like, but a deception uh to ourselves and others there is really no class we're all human beings that's a deception or sort of that um or that we lie to each other for our own personal gains or that you know that when the farmer calls you to the shed it's not to have a conversation <laughs> yeah it's to to feed his family with the rest of you now that you've done your duty right as an animal right. like that scene in babe where the goose is telling him about like you don't want to go in that room right and they see the hooks and the 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 slaughtering tools are yeah. you know and it that the notion that humans are not trustworthy that they, they have an agenda <laughs> they're not just calling you over to pat your head like you know yeah don't be gullible and maybe it's also a play on how animals consider us see us view us how we've presented ourselves to our animal kind our brotherhood you know yeah to get a little spiritual <laughs> untrustworthy at times yeah so i think that's a very fascinating really cool story all the links that we have been using throughout all of the episodes on fairy tales will be provided at the end of every episode and we will also have a compilation of links that was used throughout this podcast available on our website when you go to our website and you click on nevermore you will see all of the episodes of our podcast right there and underneath that we will have all the links that were used across all of the episodes we encourage you to keep track of what we're doing by clicking on our Freddy the Monkey and putting in your name to subscribe to the Inside Scoop, which will give you a one month advance notice of what is coming next. So you can be the first in the know with what products, services, and podcasts we will be doing. And I guess now it's on to your favorite. Right. And so my favorite story, and it's one that was read to me uh, ever since I was a little girl, um, my grandmother used to read this to me every time when I went to visit her, is another Grimm's Brothers story. And uh, it's called Snow White and Rose Red. This was published in 1905. So that's a very long time ago. The story goes, there was once an old poor widow who lived in a lonely cottage. In front of the cottage was a garden where stood two rose trees, one which bore white and the other red roses. She had two children who were like two rose trees, and one was called Snow White and the other Rose Red. They were as good and happy and busy and cheerful as ever two children in the world were. Only Snow White was more quiet and gentle than Rose Red. Rose Red liked to run about in the meadows and fields, seeking flowers and catching butterflies. 
but Snow White sat at home with her mother and helped with her housework to read to her when there was nothing to do. The chill children were so fond of one another that they always held each other by the hand wherever they went out together. And when Snow White said, We shall not leave each other, Red Rose answered, Not so ever as we live. And the mother would add, When one has, she must share with the other. They often ran about the forest alone and gathered red berries, and no beast did they any harm, but came close to them trustfully. The little hare would eat a cabbage leaf out of their hand, and the roe grazed by their side. The stag leapt merrily beside them, and the birds sat still among the boughs, and sang whatever they knew. No mishap overtook them. If they stayed too long in the forest and night came along, they laid themselves down, one upon the other, upon the moss, and slept until morning came, and their mother knew this and did not worry on their account. One day they had spent the night in the wood, and down and dawn had roused them they saw a beautiful child in a shining white dress sitting near their bed he got up and looked quite keenly at them but had said nothing and went into the forest and when they looked around they found that they had been sleeping quite close to a precipice and would certainly have fallen into the darkness had they gone just a few paces further and their mother told them that it must have been an angel who watches over good children Snow White and Rose Red kept their little mother's cottage so neat that it was a pleasure to look inside of it. In the summer, Rose Red took care of the house, and every morning laid a wreath of flowers by her mother's bed before she awoke, and in which was a rose from each tree. In the winter, Snow White lit the fire where hung the kettle on the hob. The kettle was of brass and shone like gold, so brightly it was polished. In the evening when snowflakes fell, the mother said, Go, Snow White, and bolt the front door. And when they sat around the hearth, and the mother took her spectacles and read aloud out of a large book, and the two girls listened as they, they sat and spun, and close by them lay a lamb upon the floor, and behind them, upon a perch, sat a white dove with its head beneath its wings. One day, as they were sitting comfortably together, someone knocked at the door as if he wished to be let in. The mother said, Quickly, Rose Red, open the door. It must be a traveler who is seeking shelter. Rose Red went and pushed back the bolt thinking that it was a poor man, but it was not. It was a bear that stretched its broad back black head into the door. Rose Red screamed and sprang back. The lamb bleated and the dove fluttered, and Snow White hid herself behind her mother's bed. But the bear began to speak and said, Do not be afraid. I will do you no harm. I am half frozen and only want to myself a little beside you. Poor bear, said the mother. Lie down by the fire. Only take care that you do not burn your coat. Then she cried, Snow White, Rose Red, come out. The bear will do you no harm. He means well. So they both came out, and by and by the lamb and dove came nearer and were not afraid of him. The bear said, Here, children, knock the snow out of my coat. So they brought a little broom and swept the bear's hide clean, and he stretched himself by the power and growled contently and comfortably. It was not long before they grew quite at home and played tricks with their clumsy guest. They tugged at his hair with their hands, put their feet up upon his back, and rolled him about. Or they took a hazel switch and began to beat him and when he growled they laughed but the bear took it all in good part only when they were too rough he called out leave me alone children snow white rose red will you beat your wooer dead was when it was time to go to bed and the others went to bed the mother said to the bear you can lie here by the hearth and then it, you will be safe from the cold and bad weather as soon as the day dawned the two children let him out and he trotted across the snow into the forest 
Henceforth the bear came every time at the same evening, laid himself by the hearth, and let the children amuse themselves with him as much as they liked. And they got so used to him that the doors were never fastened until the black bear had arrived. When spring came and all was green outside, the bear said one morning to Snow White, Now I must go away, and I cannot come back for the whole summer. Where are you going then, dear bear? asked Snow White. I must go into the forest and guard my treasures from the wicked dwarf. In the winter when the earth is frozen hard, they are obliged to stay below and cannot work their way through. But now when the sun has thawed and warmed the earth, they break through it and come out and pry and steal. And what once they get their hands on, and in the caves, it does not easily see daylight again. Snow White was quite sorry at his departure and unbolted the front door for him. And the bear was hurrying out. He caught the bolt of and a piece of the hairy cart was torn off. It seemed to Snow White as if she had seen gold shining through it, but she was not sure about it. The bear ran away as quickly as he could, and was soon out of sight. A short time afterwards, the mother sent her children into the firewood to get, er, forest to get firewood. They found a big tree which lay fell upon the ground, and close by the trunk something was jumping back and forth in the grass, but they could not make out what it was. When they came nearer, they saw a dwarf with an old withered face and a snow-white beard a yard long. The end of the beard was caught in the crevice of a tree, and the little fellow was jumping about like the dog tied to a rope, and did not know what to do. He glared at the girls with his fiery red eyes and cried, "'Why do you stand there? Can you come here and help me?' "'What are you up to, little man?' asked Rose Red. "'Stupid prying goose,' answered the dwarf. "'I was going to split the tree and get a little firewood for cooking.' The little bit of food that we people get are, is immediately burnt up with heavy logs. We do not swallow so much as you coarse, greedy folk. I had just driven the wedge safely in, and everything was going as I wished, but the cursed wedge was too smooth, and suddenly sprang out, and the tree closed so quickly I could not pull my beautiful white beard. So now it is tight, and I cannot get away with it, and the silly, sleek, milk-faced things laugh. Ugh, how odious you are! The children tried hard, but they could not pull the beard out. It was too fast. I will run and fetch someone, said Rose Red. You senseless goose, snarled the dwarf. Why should you fetch someone? You are already too, too many for me. Can you not think of something better? Don't be impatient, said Snow White. I will help you. And she pulled out her scissors out of her pocket and cut off the end of the beard. As soon as the dwarf felt himself free from... He laid hold of a bag which lay amongst the roots of the tree and which was full of gold, and lifted it up, grumbling to himself, Uncouth people, to cut off my fine beard! Bad luck to you! And he swung the bag upon his back, and went off without even looking once at the children. Sometime afterwards, Snow White and Red Rose Red went to catch a dish of fish. As they came near the brook, they saw something like a large grasshopper jumping towards the water as if it was going to leap in. They ran to it, and found it was the little dwarf. What are you doing? said Rose Red. You surely do not want to go into the water. I am not such a fool, cried the dwarf. Don't you see that a cursed fish wants to pull me in? The little man had been sitting there fishing, and unluckily the wind had tangled up his beard in a fishing line. A moment later, a big fish made a bite out of the feeble creature, had not had the strength to pull it out. The fish kept the upper hand and pulled the dwarf towards him. He held on all the reeds and rushes, but it was for little good, for he feared to follow the movements of the fish and was in real urgent danger of being dragged into the water. The girls came just in time. They held him fast and tried to free his beard from the line, but all in vain. Beard and line were entangled fast enough. 
There was nothing to do but bring out the scissors and cut the beard, whereby a small part of it was lost. When the dwarf saw that, he screamed about, Is that civil you told stool to disfigure, disfigure a man's face? Was it not to, enough to clip off the end of my beard? Now you have cut off the best part of it? I cannot let myself be seen by my people. I wish you had been made to run the soles off your shoes. Then he took back the sack of pearls which lay in the rushes, and without another word he dragged it away and disappeared behind a stone. It happened so afterwards that the mother sent the two children to town to buy needles and thread and laces and ribbons. The road led them across the heath upon which a huge piece of rock lay strewn about. They noticed a large bird hovering upon the air, flying slowly around about above them. It sank lower and lower and at last settled near a rock not far away. Immediately they heard a piteous cry. They ran up and saw with horror that the eagle had seized their old acquaintance, the dwarf, and was going to carry him off. The children, full of pity at once, took the tight hold of the little man and pulled against the eagle so hard that at last he let his booty go. As soon as the dwarf had recovered from his first fright, he cried in a shrill voice, Could you not have done it more carefully? You dragged at my brown coat so that it is all now torn and full of holes, you clumsy creatures. Then he took up the sack of precious stones and slipped it away again under the rock to his hole. The girls by this time were used to this ingratitude and went on their way to do business in town. As they crossed by the heath again upon their way home, they were surprised that the dwarf who had emptied out his bags of precious stones into a clean pot and had not thought anyone would come there so late. The evening sun shone upon the brilliant stones. They glittered and sparkled with all different colors beautifully. The children sat still and stared at them. Why do you stand gaping there? cried the dwarf. And his ashen grace face became proper red with rage. He was still cursing when a loud growling was heard, and a black bear came trotting out towards them. The dwarf sprang up in fright, but he could not reach his cave, for the bear was already close. Then in the dread of his heart, he cried, Dear Mr. Bear, spare me. I will give you all my treasures. Look, the beautiful ghoul jewels lying here. Grant me my life. What do you want with such a slender little fellow as I? You would not feel me between your teeth. Come take these two wicked girls. They are tender morsels for you, fat as young as quails. For mercy's sake, eat them. The bear took no heed of his words and gave the little wicked creature a single blow with his paw, and he did not move again. The girls had run away, but the bear called to them, Snow White, Rose Red, do not be afraid. Wait, I will come with you. Then they recognized his voice and waited. And when he came up to them, he suddenly, his bare skin fell off. And there stood behind him a handsome man clothed all in gold. I am the king's son, he said, and I was bewitched by that wicked dwarf who had stolen all my treasures. I have run about the forest as savage as a bear until I was freed by his death. Now he has gotten his well-deserved punishment. Snow White was married to him and Rose Thread married to his brother, and they divided between them the great treasure which the dwarves had gathered together into the cave. The old mother lived peacefully and happily with her children for many years. She took the two roses with her, and they stood before her window, and every year bore the most beautiful roses, white and red. This story really has a lot of meaning to me personally, because it was something that my grandmother read to me literally every night when I visited her to her in the summer. And it has just that personal connection of 
being read to by someone who had a lot of meaning in my life. Um, that's why I've always loved this story. Uh, a lot of people think it's a very strange and weird story, but I I love it. And I also love the way that the dwarf is so um, rude to the girls. I, I just find kind of an amusing little tale. I don't know what your take on it is. Well, I, you were the first person to actually introduce me to uh, Snow White and Rose Red, um, or, or however the title goes. I'm sorry. Is it Red Rose? Snow White and Rose Red, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you were the first person to tell me about it, and I find it very fascinating. It's almost a few fairy tales mixed together. You've got your seven, almost the dwarves from the seven dwarves. Well, there, there aren't seven, mind you, but still. Um the idea that you know beauty and the beast is kind of mixed in there because the beast is the bear and he's actually a prince and it's the same thing in beauty and the beast um the fact that snow white's in there and again that association with you know dwarves snow white um things that you know uh, good and evil and good prevails over evil and things do tend to work out in the end I find the red and the white very interesting in particular because white is meant as a a virtuous color red is the color of life I mean it's almost like a, the two women are two halves of one woman uh, the virtuous white color is the woman and her life-giving you know monthly menstrual flow almost it very speaks very much of what a woman can do and provide and be and also harkens back to that the same concept that was in beauty and the beast where you have the dutiful daughter um in this case the daughter that's taking care of everything she's there at that mother's beck and call she's taking care of the house she's cleaning she's she's basically taking on the role of what will become the household leader yeah. and we know throughout history that this is extremely common girls did not do trade they did yeah. housework yeah so in traditional society that's what that's what happened yeah they would learn it also it, the two halves also remind me of very much i'm very much like this i'm very much the gemini type i was born under gemini to dual personality her dutiful respectful i'm there for the family side and then her you know um, adventurous i want to go do things side with the the two different girls in the story right it's almost like that it's almost like they took two halves of a woman and made them into two different people. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And uh, I just love this story. And I think it's one of those lesser known uh, Grimm's Brothers stories that not a lot of people yeah. probably have encountered. But it has so many elements in it that are so similar to other tales. And I actually think the dwarf in there is the dwarf that's in, Rapun in uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very similar to that story too, which is, uh, you know, He's rude in Rumpelstiltskin too. Rude. <laughs> so perhaps rude. it is he's the defiant, same one. Yeah, because yeah. you're never given a name. Yeah, he's defiant and rude. That uh, rudeness that you get for some, some from some people and how to overcome it. It's like people from way when already knew how to do all the psychology without actually having the word psychology. You know, right? Like, what's that uh, famous quote from one of the movies? Like, oh, the cleverness of me. 
you know yes. it's, it, it, um, it, th- that's what dwarves kind of remind me of that they really are sort of the that little id inside of us that's like oh I uh, I am the best I am so clever I am so capable yeah. I am so devious that I am so vain rude. little imp in the back of your head <laughs> yeah that they says, are the little imp yeah, yeah they <laughs> are little imps yeah so you know with that said I, I think we're going to our sort of last fairy tale discussion and then we're going to do a roundup and the last one we were discussing is um the Snow Queen, and we're not going to really read a lot of this because the story is really quite long. Um, but this is the one that uh, Disney, of course, transformed epically in its uh, musical Frozen, which is based on the Snow Queen very, very loosely. Uh, in that Elsa is supposed to be harkened back to the idea of uh, the Hans Christian Andersen archetype, but basically. Uh, the Snow Queen is, is the story of this boy who falls in love with the queen. She has these pieces of glass that are shattered and sticking in the hearts of people, hearkening back to the idea of the the frozen heart. And uh, they have to go and conquer and defeat her to have this, you know, sort of peace and prosperity. Uh, the story is extremely religious, um, probably one of the most religious stories of Hans Christian Andersen, other than the little match girl. Uh, he was quite good at um, weaving Christian narratives throughout his uh, mythology, throughout his fairy tales. And so a lot of them have aspects of angels and, and God and things like that in them. That doesn't mean that that strikes them invalid. Uh, I think the variant for me happen- has to be frozen. There is something special about the fact that Disney twisted itself and made this not about... Uh, being saved by a prince and and really the love is between the two sisters and that that kind of is played out in what we just were discussing about Snow White and Rose Red it was the the two were together and the two had to stay together and be together because one could not have what the other wouldn't you know they had to share and I, I think there's definitely that plays out in the film Frozen where you have Elsa and Anna being almost yin and yang. One is diff- like one is the wild, free, abandoned, and the other one's the more dutiful. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to follow the rules that are dictated to me. And uh, you can definitely see that that archetype and narrative throughout the film. What what is your take on really the overall theme of Snow Queen and, and its relationship to Frozen? Well, for me, um, for Frozen, I I have a pretty similar take as you do. I like the fact that it's the two sisters and a sisterly love um, that they they end up portraying and discussing and teaching about rather than male and female love or, you know, stranger to or two different families, you know, just man and woman love. It's replaced with that sister love instead because... um, that you don't see that often in movies or books or whatnot and it was very refreshing to actually have that in one of especially in one of Disney's movies um, I like the idea that you know the female her- heroine is is the one that takes over instead of uh, a male hero in this case because again you don't very much see female strong roles these days and I like that Disney is turning toward those female strong roles lately. 
um, because we need them. Our girls need them. Our, our daughters, we need them as women to know that we are just as strong as men are. And can do things without being rescued. Do you know? I think if if anyone has not seen it, the Ralph breaks the internet. There's uh, the second um, Wreck It Ralph movie. There is this insanely funny scene where Disney is just totally tugging and cheeking itself. Where the main the main character comes into the realm. There, there's all the Disney princesses there, and they're all like, "Have you been poisoned?" You know, like, and and it's just, you know, and they they they. It was just this funny moment of like, I think Disney understands that its fans are saying to them, hey, we're tired of seeing, you know, women sitting in the tower waiting to be rescued. We want them to do the rescuing. And it was totally funny to watch that whole whole bunch of scenes where the Disney princesses actually used all their magical powers to save Ralph. Like they, you know, Ariel like swoops up water and you know Pocahontas is shooting arrows and there's this like gigantic uh trap thing that they built <laughs> it yeah. was all the all of them contributed to this you know they're gonna go save the prince and, and I think it kind of gave them a moment uh of really re- returning power back to them yeah. and I really enjoyed that scene and I know that not everyone is a an uber Disney fan like I am but um I thought it was quite ingenious that they they used that sort of play on it, um, and and really like Elsa herself, it in, in both in all of the movies, whether it's Frozen or the Ragged Ralph ones, and even in the sort of Christmas special, the Olaf's Frozen Adventure, and I believe that there's rumors of Frozen too. She she kind of she's not she's not evil. She she's a lost broken person who's been suppressed and and isn't able to live the life that she wants and throughout the film you kind of see her transform and realize that she has this amazingly beautiful gifted power um and uh i you know it's it's probably one of my again most favorites i think right after that moana came out and that almost trumped the musical scores in terms of being funny, witty, and also Disney tonguing and cheeking itself. But, um, you know, I, I really like the Snow Queen in the original form, and I, but I really love Elsa's transformation of that character and giving her less of an evil quality and more of a, I'm just trying to embrace myself. I'm just trying to be the thing that I'm meant to be you know, yeah. and totally living that. And making mistakes along the way that she ends up correcting in the end, too. That because it's not always about good and evil. It's about sometimes good makes mistakes and still, you know, has to fix those mistakes. It's not necessary. Human beings aren't inherently evil. That's the message. We aren't inherently evil. We're not born evil. Just we make mistakes. And sometimes we get some humans that don't see their mistakes. And there are plenty of those in our human history that prove that. And then there are plenty of heroes, both genders, or all genders rather, that are good and that do good and have made mistakes. We are human. We're perfectly imperfect is the message. Right, and I think that's a, a, a brilliant message to have. So, 
With that in mind, as Elsa says, it's time to let it go and discuss the roundup of all of the fairy tales that we have sort of discussed and the overall Archie message that we think that they're trying to convey. And I mean, you could spend the rest of your life discussing uh, the real meaning that is hidden amongst fairy tales. But for me, I think my overall arching message about fairy tales is that they give us a sense of understanding our past mixing into our future and kind of blending a, a world of fantasy into reality and I, I think that is what the beautiful nature of fairy tales are I agree with you there and as well I'll add to that that it's a way of also conveying uh, any particular message both then and now that might not necessarily get through all of the hub and bub of devices and online and it brings you back to a simpler time and a simpler way of conveying a message right and it reminds us of the joy of sitting on our grandparents lap or the lap of our parent and having that book cracking open and having these moments and I think that's one thing as a both a publisher and a mother when I go to schools and talk about the aspect of writing to children, they ask me why I write. And it's because of that, that these moments are so precious to me that having books that I want to read to my child because I have memories of those books, because I loved those stories when I was a kid, brings full circle the idea of my past and present and future winding together in this very moment. And it lets me pause and take a minute out of my busy life to really connect with my child on a level that's vastly different. And so there's just nothing, nothing compares to seeing your child looking at you and saying, one more mom, you know, every night. So I think Nothing that's... compares to that one more <laughs> mom, does it ever? Nothing. There's nothing on this planet that could give you a better feeling than one more story, mom. Yeah, just one more story. So or dad. In, or dad, yeah, or whoever. Like, uh, yeah, whatever person is out there that is the storyteller in the family, keep on doing what you do because storytelling, uh, storytellers themselves are so valuable that as Jim Henson's production of the storyteller says to us, and the best seat by the fire was reserved for the storyteller. And that, I think, holds true today. So with that in mind, keep on reading to your kids. It's vastly important, not only for their cognitive development, but also helps them learn language skills, critical thinking skills, and also creates a bond between you and your child in whatever role that you play in your child's life. Remember that reading under the age of five increases the vocabulary by 10. So it is incredibly vital that you continue reading to your child. When looking for books to start your life reading, we recommend Bundle Bunnies, produced by the Three Little Sisters. Come away and count the day as Bundle Bunnies bounce and play. You can relearn your ABCs and 123s as bunnies leap out from the page. Fully illustrated, this early reader is perfect for your pre-K kid. If you're homeschooling at home or just getting them ready for their first day of pre-K, Bundle Bunnies gives you an engaging and challenging uh, reading experience as your child will access early learning and math skills. We recommend this book um, 
was written by myself and illustrated by the lovely Shiyama Yolambaruby. You can catch it in print for the low price of $12 and in Kindle for $6 at our website www.the3littlesisters.com. We also encourage parents to take a tour around our freebies page where you can find some free books for your early reading pleasure. If you've got a child heading towards pre-K or TK here in the States, you might want to grab some books to help you get them ready for school. Most pre-K and TK programs require your child to learn at least the numbers 1 through 10 and understanding letters from A to Z. So begin that those lessons today by picking up a free copy of The Little Bird's Book of ABCs and Sue's Flight. Both books are incredibly easy to read with very short text, helping your child get the skills and confidence of reading. We want to encourage everyone to stay tuned to our next episode where we will be discussing the film Stardust and the book by the same name by author Neil Gaiman. We'll be kind of digging deep into the universe as we know it, talking about the stuff in the stars and maybe revealing what astrological signs we are and uh, what mean to us. Stay tuned to all that and more. You can find out all the information about the sources that we use throughout this podcast underneath this video by clicking all the links below. We want to thank Mobile Sounds for helping us with all the mixing. And with all that in mind, is there anything that you would like to add, dear executive coordinator? No, you you pretty much beat me to it all. And I look forward to the next po podcast. And onward bound we go. Yeah, just last thing we'd like to remind everyone to make sure that you're clicking on that lovely subscribe button and also feed Freddie your emails. It's vastly important to this little publisher that you pay attention to everything we do. Why? Because without readers, we don't have a company. So please keep on reading. Keep sending us your feedback. We really do appreciate all of the support, the feedback, everything and more. It helps us grow as a company. So please feel free to catch us online anytime on Facebook, Twitter, or our website. You can contact us and we will get back to you whenever we can. With all that in mind, we want to thank everyone for, that helps in with the Nevermore podcast and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>